The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. your attention this morning if you have your Bible, and if you don't, we're on page 912 of the Blue Pew Bibles to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Specifically, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, uh, with particular focus. Actually, the sermon is based on the three points, because we're Baptists after all, of course, and the three points are going to be coming out of Acts chapter 4, verse 12. For as you're turning, I do just want to mention something I said before Nathaniel came up. Uh, We did at the business meeting present uh, several items that uh, we're going to be looking at in the coming couple years about uh, where God has us, where we want to go. Uh, We do have some brief notes about those out on the rack. Don't rush out right now. Uh, You've got to wait for the sermon, right? But uh, uh, we'll be uh, putting those things out about where we're going to be going. And I'll just give you the brief of it. In 2018, we want to see what God wants for a church. Where is it, biblically, God wants a church to go? And we need to talk about how we're doing there, what we can do better, and also celebrate what God has done among us. And guys, you are so faithful. God has been so faithful to our church. So thank you for sharing in that. And then in 2019, Lord willing, to put some practical feet to the things we discuss and pray through and and go through. And then by 2020, uh, to have some different structures in place that, Lord willing, will serve the church well for many years to come, as so much has happened to get us to this point. You pray that God be glorified. And part of doing that is, is, is going right with our sermon today, Christ alone. And you know, as, as often, you hear a lot of things in church, and, and some things you don't hear from church. I want to give you a good old list, and I love these things. I know there's debate, should you use humor in sermons and all that thing. I laughed at this, and it makes a point, so maybe you'll laugh with me. Would that be okay? Uh, I hope that's all right. So here's a list of things you'll never hear or perhaps rarely hear in church. And uh, uh, the first being this. Hey, pastor, it's my turn to sit on the front row. Please move aside. (laughs) Or I was so enthralled, pastor, that you went over 25 minutes in your sermon. Can you preach for another 25, please? Or personally, I find evangelizing much more enjoyable than watching golf on the golf channel. Sorry, Jeff Jones, if you're in here, uh, uh, my fellow golfer, or not fellow golfer. Uh, you know, Pastor, I decided that I'm going to send you to a Bible seminar in the Bahamas for an all-inclusive resort. Are you ready to go? Our Pastor, I volunteer to be the permanent teacher for the junior high Sunday school class. Sign me up right away. And, oh, Pastor, nothing inspires me and strengthens me more than our commitment to our annual stewardship campaign. Tell me how you can give more money to the church. That's what You don't hear that very often, do you? You really don't. Some of those are silly, some are serious, but it's so true. So many things in our churches we hear quite often and we joke about, but unfortunately, one thing that we're going to look at today is something that we don't talk about very much. We don't hear in a lot of churches today that you are saved by faith alone and grace alone by Christ alone. Church, let's not take that for granted. There are so many churches, even within our midst, even in our area, that would look at this and say, are you kidding me? 
a recent Barna survey, and I'm not a big Barna fan, but for sake of analogy, Barna, a recent survey of a large church, a thousand response, the millennial generation, 1983 to 2000 birth date, one third of the respondents believe that you are saved in Christ alone. Wow. 33% of our young people, and I'm included in the millennials at 33, believe that or not, believe that Jesus Christ saves you alone. So there are things in churches that we think, well, how could you not say that? I mean, we can laugh at the other stuff, but seriously, how could no one ever say Christ alone saves us? But we're reminded, as Dave read for us, and Dave, brother, thank you for reading, and and, and all the men who have read Scripture for us in the previous weeks, thank you. Isaiah 44, 6 reminds us so well that God says, I am the Lord, the King of Israel, His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last, and there are no other gods besides me, as you'll see up on the screen. All other religions will say, this is the way, but it's only Jesus who says, I am the way. Do you believe that? Why is it then that so many miss the mark on this? I mean, if Jesus says he's the only way, doesn't that just settle the issue? I mean, why is it that so many practically have just dismissed Christ alone. I mean, it was in recent years that the Presbyterian churches of USA, many of you remember this, uh, in 2013 had a debate as to whether or not to include the phrase, the wrath of God that we sang about in Christ alone in their sermon or in their, in their songs. And they came up to say, they, they dismissed that phrase and they went to the original creators of the song and they said, well, that just can't be right. How can you say that God can take the wrath alone? And they wanted to say the wrath of God. No, they want to say the love of God is magnified. And the original creators of the song said that is not scriptural. No, you cannot take and do that. This is a major, albeit very liberal, denomination that has gone so wayward. Friends, here's the big idea today. If we take away the uncompromising scandal and demands of the exclusiveness of Christ alone, What's left behind is an empty, hollow message that cannot save. In Christ alone, our most unpopular, our most prophetic, most liberating belief is if we surrender, we will lose everything. Are we willing to stand on this? If everyone escapes hell and goes to heaven without trusting Christ alone, then Jesus was just wasting his time. That's how serious it gets. So today I want to look at three realities that come in as we look at this. Acts 4, verse 12. And this is what it is. We're going to look at the priority of salvation. There is salvation, Peter will say. There's nothing greater in life. There is exclusivity of salvation. There's no one else, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved outside of Jesus. And there's the necessity of salvation. You must be saved. And friends, I want to remind ourselves as we, uh, you may be joining us in the study, we're in a study of the five solos of the Reformation, the, the onlys, the alones of the Reformation. And this was a decisive issue, a question in the 16th century because we celebrate this year just in about a week on Halloween, the 500th anniversary of the breaking away from false doctrine into truth. But how can sinful man and sinful woman be right before a holy God? That's what it came down to. How can they be? And on one side, Rome said salvation is Jesus Christ and. Notice that word and. They don't deny that salvation is in Christ. It's just when they add the word and. Salvation, Jesus, yes, but good works and baptism, Mary, the indulgences, mass, confession, saints, last rites, and, 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 ad nausea. No one could ever know if they had salvation who could live up to it. 
But praise God for men and women who said with one voice, with no, and declared that salvation is in Christ alone. There's no and attached. They could have just said Christ, period, but the entire Reformation was a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are here today because these men and women gave their lives for that very thing. And one of the solos of that is that the difference between and and alone. The other side said salvation is by Christ and, but the reformer said Christ alone. Can you imagine husband or wife if you got married on the wedding day and all the former boyfriends or girlfriends of your spouse came up and you said, I commit my life to this person. Oh, whoa, 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 wait, pastor. And this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. I don't know how you could afford the wedding rings alone, but that, that enough would be enough. Think of it this way. The foundation on which we build everything is Scripture alone, the first study that we had. And there are three great pillars that kind of shoot up out of that. And these are massive pillars that's by grace alone, by faith alone, and now Christ alone. And next week, Aaron, uh, Aaron Stevens, our, our tallest guy in our, our auditorium, I'm convinced, will be bringing the final top of that foundation, the, the ceiling, if you will, of God's glory alone. Friends, faith alone in Christ alone is not just something that we talk about it to say amen to. It really impacts every part of your life in eternity. It's that important. So with that in mind, would you join me in standing as we read God's Word, Acts 4, 7 through 12, as Peter speaks to the Jewish council as he is getting ready to testify to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ alone. Again, on page 912 of the Blue Bible, and we will be reading and especially focusing on verse 12. Acts 4, 7 says, and when they had said that set them in the midst, that's Peter and John, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, verse 11, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name, that being Jesus' name, under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. If you're an underliner, if you're using a smartphone, whatever app or tool you got, underline verse 12. This is so foundational. Memorize this first, commit it to memory, do it, live it out. May God give us wisdom as we study today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. As we come, Father, it's not you and anything. It's you and you alone. So, Father, as we look through this verse and just break it down and reminding ourselves for much of us, many of us in this room, of great truths that we've known since childhood, and thank you that we've had that opportunity, Lord. May you invigor our faith through your Spirit Father, may you draw our church closer and closer together, not around a favorite sports team or a favorite experience or being Northlanders or whatever it is, and, and those are good in their proper place. But Father, ultimately, may you unite our church around Christ alone. And Father, as long as this church has existence, may that be what is always taught at this church and every true church by your grace wherever we may go. Father, thank you for these dear saints. We pray this all to the glory of your name, for your wisdom. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, as we come to this pivotal doctrine, it is such that it is so important to have because Christ alone fills out our priority. And you'll see that there where Peter says there is salvation in no other name. There is salvation. That's what I want to focus on. Did you ever think about that? There is salvation. I can remember I was thinking of an analogy to compare this to, but I remember studying abroad in Mexico for uh, several months in college, and I remember uh, just taking for granted the fact that we can turn on the tap water and take a drink, and that's sufficient enough. But in Mexico, if you take a drink of the water, it's not always good for you if you understand where if you've been there before. So to have something and to take it for granted, how easily we forget. And Peter tells us first off in in, in verse 12 here, there's a priority of salvation. Peter says there is salvation. So man's greatest need is not financial or emotional or political or social or cultural or emotional or health-filled or educational. Man's greatest need is spiritual salvation. And that's what Peter declares to them. If you notice in verse 12, he says the priority is, is that there is salvation. There is salvation. Not five months down the line, not five years down the line, but now there is salvation. Not there if you jump through a hoop, not there if you go to a certain class, but there is salvation found in no one else. Guys, that's awesome. That's awesome. May we never take that for granted. I just want to break this down into three quick questions as we look at the priority of salvation. The first is, what does salvation mean? I want to give you a negative and a positive. What does salvation mean? First, the negative. You are saved from something. We've talked about this in recent weeks, but you are delivered and rescued from an impending doom. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. And now every person in this room has an impending doom. You're saved from something. That's the negative. What is salvation? But the positive is, is that you are saved to something. Isn't that great? Isn't it nice when your parents always gave you a, a, a positive? If, yes, you got punished, but if you continue good behavior, there's something there. We don't get good behavior to get to heaven, but this is an earthly analogy to point to a greater spiritual one if we can. You are saved to something. There's a right relationship with God and restoration through him. That is the greatest news that we have. Deliverance from destruction and rescue from ruin and acceptance by a holy, holy, holy God. Many of you are familiar with the, uh, well, let me just, that's the first question. What does salvation mean? The second question is, from whom do we need to be saved? Many of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul. Uh, many of you have read his books before. R.C. Sproul, you know that name. R.C. Sproul wrote a book uh, several years ago called Saved from What? And R.C. Sproul back in the 60s was a rabid new believer. And he got a knock on his door one day in his dorm room. And someone asked him, they said, sir, are you saved? And R.C. kind of looked at him and said, saved from? And the guy ran off because he got so nervous witnessing to him. He ran off is what the story goes. And Sproul was so upset. He's saved from what? Is Is the building on fire? Is, you know, what is going on here? What is going on? So he wrestled with this, and he kept asking him that question, saved from what? And finally, this man had a follow-up conversation, and they talked about how he must be saved from God himself, that the wrath of Almighty God, holy God against sinners, that he didn't need to be saved from loneliness or, or, or insecurity or meaningless life, 
or being a junior in a college and still trying to figure out what his major is going to be, whatever. Sproul realized and testified in his book, Save From What?, that nothing compared to the need to be saved from God himself. So when Peter says there is a priority of salvation, there is salvation, what he is saying is that it's only the one that can save from God himself is God himself. God can only save us from himself. God can only save you from God, to put it that way. So what is salvation? You're saved from something. You're saved to something. You're saved by what or from whom? You're saved from God. And thirdly, the priority of salvation, why is it necessary? It's necessary because Psalm 11.4 says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids test the souls of men. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. Don't have time to chase this, but I want you to know there is a sense in which God does hate theologically. What does that mean for us? It means that God hates iniquity and the people who do it, and God is angry with the wicked. But in Christ alone, that has been satisfied. In Christ alone, it points us to the fact that everyone needs to be saved. Same for the impending judgment of God and the fiery furnace of a literal hell. Friends, most of us, and this I know we're having trouble with the screen today, but I'll just read this for you, but most of our desires for success are actually efforts for ourselves to be what only Jesus can really be for us. We try so much to appease God by doing everything else except going to Christ alone. How often do we run even in Christ, to say that, well, Jesus, if you just do this for me, I'll do that for you. Or, God, if I do this, can you meet me halfway? And I promise I'll do all these things for you. But what Christ alone reminds us, friend, is that it's more important than where you stand with men is where you stand with God. It's more important than where you live in this world is where you'll live in the world to come. It's more important to where you live in this world is where you'll live in the world to come. Let that sink in. If Christ alone is there and it's necessary for you to be saved from God, to be saved to God, then the most important thing is to know there is salvation. That's great news. It's more important than your body because your body could be well here, but your soul could be not well in eternity. More important than your financial state is the well-being of your spiritual state. Friend, if you're visiting here today, and we thank you so much, and if you're among us and you don't know Jesus, thank you so much for coming. We know that's a big step in the fact to step in a church, especially a Baptist church. We understand that because Baptists like to preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. But whatever church it is, if it preaches Christ, praise God in his providence he brought you here today. Have you received salvation? Not praying a prayer, not saying, Jesus, here's five, here, here's, a, here's a parrot prayer, I'm going to parrot back to you. But have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and believed that Jesus Christ alone is Savior? We'd love to talk to you about that. You know, I love that old show, Antiques Roadshow. Is that still on, by the way? We don't have a TV. We literally have no TV in our house, so we have no idea. Antiques Roadshow, any fans out there? A lot of people, yes. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, this list actually came out of this, but uh, there's a painting. Let me just read this list for you. What is it worth? A painting by Picasso could take a worthless sheet of paper Write a poem on it and make it worth $6,000. Friends, that's called genius. LeBron James could sign a name to a piece of paper and make it worth a million dollars. That's called capital. 
Uncle Sam can take a gold and stamp and an eagle on it and make it worth 20. That's called money. A mechanic, and I'm thinking of all our mechanical guys here at work at Ford, many of you guys, that is worth only $5 and you can make it worth 50 That's called skill. An artist can take a 50-cent piece of canvas, paint a picture on it, and make it worth $1,000. That is called art. But you know what the worth is? That only God can take a sinful life, such as yours, such as mine, and wash it in the blood of Christ, put His Spirit in it, and make it a blessing to, sal- make it a blessing to humanity. Friends, that's called salvation. That is what we have in Jesus Christ. That is the priority. There is salvation. Christian, have you forgotten the joy of that salvation this week? Have you forgot that Christ alone saves you? May we repent until we see it. Secondly, I want you to see the exclusivity. Say that five times fast. The exclusivity of salvation. You notice there in verse 12 that Peter, before the council... They were, of course, uh, as the context goes, I don't think I mentioned this, but context is they healed a man, and uh, he says, rise, get up by the name of Jesus. He does that, and they're putting him on trial because of this. And he says there, there is salvation. But look at the exclusivity. Peter says there, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. That's kind of scary, isn't it? scary how? It's scary because if you're not in Jesus, there is no other way. That's really it. How many people are praying right now around the world? How many people are, are worshiping false gods, lighting candles to the millions of gods of Hinduism or whatever it is? But he reminds us here that it is exclusive. Exclusive. It's important because it's found in no one else. Notice it doesn't say, it doesn't say there's salvation in Tower View Baptist Church. It doesn't say there's salvation in religion. It doesn't say that there's salvation in the baptistry way back here. It doesn't say there's salvation in good works. It doesn't say there's salvation in what money you can bring to the table. And if it's not credit, it almost seems like it doesn't happen these days by God's grace. It's not salvation in membership. You can join the church a million times over. There's no salvation in reincarnation. There's no salvation in sincerity. Look, the Missouri Tigers are the most sincere football team I've ever, ever, I'm sorry, the KU Jayhawks are the most sincere football team I've ever seen, but they broke a record last night. They had 21 total yards in a football game last night, guys. Let that sink to you. The, the quarterback had a total of negative 24 yards to his name last night in passing, so I'll just let that be what it is. Be sincere in a lot of things. It doesn't save you. You're not saved by your family's faith. Just because your granddaddy was a pastor doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You're not saved by your pastor's faith. I, I wish that we had a magic button as pastors to say, saved, and it just goes out like that. It doesn't work that way. You're not saved because you can win Bible trivia more than anyone else. You're not saved by your abilities. Salvation is found in no one else, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 10, he tells us very clearly why this is the case. When Peter responds, he says in verse 10, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you've crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by, this, by him this man is standing before you. Salvation is Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. And we're not just dogmatic about that. As, as one famous pastor says, and I love his phraseology on this, we are bold dogmatic about that. 
Why? Because Scripture speaks with such clarity on this. Not one drop of saving grace is outside the person of Jesus. Not one drop of saving grace is without receiving grace outside of faith alone in Christ alone. It's not until a person comes all the way to Christ alone and puts his feet in, in Jesus and both feet in the water. You can't have one foot in good works and one foot in Jesus. That's why it's not in Moses. It's not in the Pope. It's not in Paul or Allah or Muhammad or Confucius or Zoroaster or Baha'u'llah or Mary Eddie Baker or Joseph Smith or Buddha. It's in Jesus. Only the Son of God was sent to save sinners, and there's only one Savior of the world. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, he said, One God and one mediator between God and man, the testimony at the proper time. You know, a mediator, I, uh, mediation is a very hard thing to do if you've ever done it before. But what does a mediator do? If you've been in a, a, a court battle or seen some of these things happen, a mediator stands between two people and brings reconciliation, doesn't he or she? In this case, Christ must be impartial to both sides in true and proper mediation. Let's remind ourselves, Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% of each. He's able to represent God perfectly on one side and completely, but he's also able to represent man because he's fully man. And through Christ's mediation on the cross, and Jesus has brought together the two offended parties. He's brought together the holy God on one side and the super sinful man on the other. And at the cross, God in Christ meets and takes on the wrath of God that satisfies everything that we need in Him. That's exclusivity, friends. God in His grace and mercy sent Jesus to be the mediator, and God was under no obligation to do this. Let's remind ourselves of that fact. Out of the depths of His eternal love, He sent forth His Son, and in doing that, He foreordained to die upon the cross for sin and sinners. Let's say it as it is. The gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. I hated as a kid, you know how this works in elementary school. I don't know if they still do this. Our kids quite aren't of age. But they used to have those, those clubs that you would join. There was like a new club every day. There's the, 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 the blue shirt club, and you wear a blue shirt. Well, you're not in our club because now we're the orange club, you know, or whatever it is. You, you know what I'm talking about. You grew up in the States. There was a club for everything. And eventually, you had to work your way into the club. You know, you have secret meetings over here. Behind our house in Plattsburgh, we had the Ninja Club, which I don't know how we got that club, but there was only two of us, and no one else became ninjas. It was just us. <laughs> but you know how this is. Sometimes, and, and you know, membership to clubs, you pay a membership to go exercise. You ever think about that? Now, do we still exercise? That's the question. You, we pay membership, but Jesus says he is the exclusive inclusive. He is exclusive in the sense there is no other club. There is no other way. There's no other truth but him. It's no one else, but it's the most inclusive club ever. Isn't that awesome? It's not based on your race. It's not based on your creed. It's not based on your weight, your height, your strength, your weakness, your mind. It's based on Christ, and it's inclusive. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And yes, good scripture tells us the Lord knows those who will be saved. We know that. That's another sermon for another time. But all who call upon the Lord will be saved. That's awesome. Are you looking forward to a heaven where you can worship with every tribe, every nation, every language, every people group, unlike ourselves? Because it's not just about us. It's all about him. That's awesome. What a great day that's going to be. 
And I'm grateful. And we're going to be praying, uh, Carmen. We're going to be praying for you. You see it in your, your bowls. We're going to be praying for Carmen after the service. She's going to be heading down to Puerto Rico for some, uh, I say short-term missions, really long-term missions, I think is a good way to say it. But thank you for doing that. We have so many people in our church who go and we send. And we, we, we gain by sending, by the way. Although we're sending out quality folks, God is good. Because there's an exclusive message with an inclusiveness. Repent and believe in Jesus alone. There's a great story. You know, someone asked one time, we were uh, evangelizing in Westport, the uh, bar district, and they came up to us, and I remember this, I checked the notes, it's been about 10 years ago in 2007. They came up and they said, they didn't know my name, they said, sir, that sounds, what you're saying sounds so narrow-minded. I said, yeah, it is. It sounds so exclusive. Yeah, it is. It sounds so intolerant. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know how else to say that to you. Proverbs 14 reminds us that, the, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man, but in thereof is death. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Jesus Christ has an, has an exclusive monopoly church, doesn't he, on the truth. And whatever truth you will have, you'll have to do business with him. Do you see why these old dead guys that we don't venerate, we just praise God for their ministry, do you see why they're willing to die in the fire at a stake for this truth? Do you see that salvation is by no other name and faith in Christ alone? Do you see what our witness must be in everywhere we go, to school, work, or live by? Do you see how bold and straightforward we have to be in Christ, even if it doesn't win as friends and influence people? It's not a way. There's only a way to God. It's through Christ. It's not hard to understand, quite frankly. It's just hard to swallow, isn't it? But black print on white paper testifies to the truth. And we live in a culture that elevates the virtue of tolerance and how gracious and kind and loving we should be to the people of the world. But God is intolerant of any attempts of us to save ourselves. There's a true story out of the East Coast um, that came out in the 1800s I want to share with you that I think connects this point well. There was a dangerous seacoast where ships often wrecked and there was once a crude little building. I have a picture of it up. I know we're having trouble. I wish you could see it. But the building was just kind of a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea to see if any ships had wrecked. And it's, that's what their job was, basically. And some of those who were saved and various others in surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station that was saving all these people. They wanted to get involved with this little hut that was out there in all the midst. And so they bought new boats. They bought new crews, and the little life-saving station grew. And some of the members of the life-saving station over the coming months were so unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. I mean, it's just this little hut, kind of a thatched hut, uh, like the old English and Irish days. And they felt that a more comfortable place should be provided to the people as they were rescued from sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds that were there with better furniture. They enlarged the building. And now the life-saving station had become, quite honestly, a popular gathering place for its members. They hung out there even when people weren't being saved from the sea. And they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exclusively because they used it as sort of a club. And now, as what was happening, as the expansion grew, fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they basically sourced out, they hired out lifeboat crews to do their work. And they said, well, we want to keep our decorations, but we don't want to be involved in the process. We'll just wait for them to get here. 
So about this time, a large ship had crashed and wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews were brought in, boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty, they were sick, and the beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside where the victims could get cleaned up before coming inside. Makes sense, right? So the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since, they were, since these people coming were unpleasant. They were, they, were, they were a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. And some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose. But the people who wanted just to go back to the old days of saving people were voted down by those who loved the extravagance that the building had become. And as the year went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And history continued to repeat itself, and if you visit the seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs that are next to the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent, but most of the people are not saved because of the exclusivity of the clubs. Did you catch the analogy? Friends, the history of some churches who have abandoned the exclusive nature of Jesus alone are just like the clubs in this analogy who got comfortable making a big boat station with all the decorations and just let someone else go and do it. But it's those churches who said, Lord, your message is exclusive, and we want to share that message that are the ones that are most healthy and most vibrant. Do you see the difference? Friends, I am grateful that our church, and and I look at Brother Richard there at at prayer meeting on 5 o'clock on Sunday nights as an open invitation. Uh, Brother Richard always opens up almost uh, every time with, Lord, thank you for this old building. Richard, is that about right? It's about right. Thank you for this old building. It keeps us warm. It keeps us dry. It keeps us cool. It does all those things. But I praise God that we have a church that stands on this bedrock, that we're not going to be extravagant because we want to feed ourselves, but we want to be simple if it is, if that's what it's called, so that we can reach the masses and save those. Friends, you ought to celebrate that. You ought to be praised for that, but praise God that he's working among you to that. One more thing as we close. You see the priority of salvation. You see the exclusivity of salvation. But finally, I want you to see the necessity of salvation. Verse 12, it says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven given among men by which, and here's the phrase, we must be saved. The necessity of of salvation. No matter what continent you live on, no matter what generation or century or city or whatever, it can't be any clearer. There's no other name under heaven by which we are to be saved. What a great reminder. Men have conspired and, you know, try to concoct this the other way, but how are we saved? We are saved, as John 3.16 tells us, we are saved by God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, here's the bottom line. If you could obey your way into God's arms, then the cross of Jesus Christ would not have been necessary. God is the one who's given us His Son in no other way, and because no one else has been born of a virgin, no one else has kept the law perfectly, no one else was used the big word propitiated, the, the righteous anger of God satisfied it and my sin. 
No one else can reconcile us between God and man. No one else was raised from the dead. No one else has been seated at the right hand of God. Reminds me of a story of old George Whitfield, one of the uh, famous preachers of the 1700s, one of the greatest revivalist preachers, but solidly revivalist theologically preachers. A lady come at, came up asked after a, a meeting and said, why must I be born again? A lady asked him, why must I be born again? I'm good enough. I've got everything I need. And Whitfield looked her straight in the face and said, because you must be born again. In the passive voice, we can't save ourselves. We must be saved. And only the contribution we make is the sin laid upon Jesus. Everything else is for naught. It's all grace by faith in Christ alone. What are some implications of this? Friends, we know there's a priority. We know there's exclusivity. We know that there is a necessity to be saved. If you're not a Christian, whether you've been here for years or this is your first week, you must be saved. I cannot save you. I cannot implore you enough. But I... As anyone here will t- we want you to know Christ. If you don't know Jesus, then come talk to us after the service. We'd love to talk with you. Let me give you four implications. I've actually written down more than this. I don't know where the page ended up. I've got 22 that came out. I'm not going to read them to you. I'll send them out over email. I was having fun on Sunday after, on, on Tuesday uh, afternoon during my study time. I want to give you four, friends, and there's so many. I'm trying to there's so much. You can speak to Christ alone in salvation. You can speak to Christ alone in how you run a church. You can speak to Christ alone. Fill in the blank. Let me just give you some practical implications. And let me, let me backtrack that to say that salvation is practical. It is your life. It is everything you have. Salvation is practical. The gospel is practical. But let me just give some things that in our culture of Christianity that Christ alone speaks to. I don't know who this covers in this church, but I was thinking of myself. I wish I had known this. Single folk, you are not incomplete. Don't let anyone suggest to you that a spouse will be for you what only Christ can. I can't think of a single person I've ever seen improve in any way of being shamed or or marginalized. And Jesus didn't do that. If you're a single person, can I encourage you today that in Christ alone you find your identity? Because of what he has done for you, it is nothing for you to think that in Christ you are not incomplete but complete. And married people, can I just tell you, no person's ever going to complete you. Maybe you figure that out. I don't know. Only Jesus can do that. Don't expect a person to do what only he can. And if having Jesus doesn't make you content and happy with your spouse and your kids and whatever God has given you, then nothing ever will. It is in Christ alone, and that is a step from salvation. We've talked about I understand that, but I want to speak to that especially because if you're here, only Jesus can be your identity. Married folk, divorced folk, widowed folk, widower folk, single folk, it is in Christ alone. Your job is not your identity. Your abilities are not your identity. Your bank account is not your identity. Your likes on Facebook are not your identity. If it is, that's really scary. Because sometimes you're going to post something that's not popular, and you're going to get no likes, and you're going to say, oh, my goodness, what did I do to all these people? It's a scary place to be. In Christ alone, an implication is you are not incomplete, but because of the person and work of Christ in salvation, you now have a complete identity in him. Second is this, compare yourself only with Jesus. Oh, wow, that's a great comparison. Thanks, Pastor. Let me just feel really bad about myself right now. Compare yourself only with Jesus. What do I mean by that? It's going to keep you humble before God, gracious towards others, and hopeful for more grace. 
if we compare ourselves to our others or ourselves, we'll find either pride or despair. But if we compare ourselves to Christ, we'll only find a greater need for grace in our lives. Because Christ alone says there's nothing worth comparing. Look, you may not be as pretty as the next. I'm not going to comment on any of that. I'll let you fill in the blanks. You may not be as handsome as the next. I don't care. God doesn't care. He cares what your heart looks like before him. That's what he cares about. Let me say it again. An implication, thirdly, is salvation is not in a church, a cause, or a code, but in Christ. It's not in a church. If a church ever tells you you must become a member of that church to be saved, you run and flee from that church as far as the heavens can go. Do you understand that, church? If Tower View ever gets up and says, we are moving and it is through Tower View alone that you are saved, oh my goodness, you better come up and slap me silly because that's just silliness right there. You are not saved by a church. You're not saved by a cause. Look, friends, we should be the greatest activists for the marginalized, for the poor, for the victimized. We should be the greatest activists for those folks because Christ has done that for us. But just being a part of a cause, a social justice cause, does not make you a Christian. went to college at a place that preached this gospel, the social justice gospel, and I can tell you it's not true. You are not saved by being part of change in the world. You're saved by the change that God gives you in Christ that allows you to be an agent of change in the world. You're not saved by a code. Look, there are no secret Bible codes in this Bible. Can I just debunk that right now? You don't need a a decipher key to figure this out. Yes, there are hard passages. And if you get five seminary students up here and ask them what part of Revelation they, you know, this part about this and this part, you're probably going to get five different opinions. But we know Christ is coming back, literally, gloriously, visibly, seriously, all those great things, victoriously. But this is not a code. You don't have to look at the codes to figure out when things are going to, whatever. Christ has spoken. This is authoritative. Scripture alone. September 23rd, 2017 will be a day that lives in infamy. Remember that day three weeks ago, a month ago? Someone said well, on a YouTube video that he signed up all the, the numbers and all the numbers told him that Christ was going to come back on, I believe it was September 3rd, the second, the last Saturday in September. Friends, is Christ going to return? Amen? But we don't set dates. Why? Because we're not saved by a code. We're saved by a very clear message that says that we are, there's no other name in heaven. Do you see how easy this is to go back to the basics? We are saved by Christ. Finally, and I'll leave you with this. We desperately need to reject every other source of strength but the grace of Christ alone. Friend, if you trust more in what your horoscope tells you, or if we trust more in what our friends and our advisors tell us more than what the Scripture has revealed to us about Christ, we need to be very, very careful. We're touching on unholy ground. Aren't you grateful that Jesus makes it so simple? Well, Darren, how do I raise my kids well? What did Jesus tell you about it in Christ alone? Darren, how do I, my, 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 my spouse and I don't see eye to eye like we used to, how do I get back to that? Have you sought Christ alone? Darren, my favorite sports team didn't make it to the World Series. I don't have any advice for you there. Just uh, let it be what it is, all right? The Yankees didn't make it last night, so praise God it is what it is. Darren, how do I, I have wayward children. What do I do to bring them back? Have you prayed in Christ's name alone? Have you pointed them back to Christ alone? Darren, I have an addiction I can't seem to, to, to come back with. Have, have you sought Christ alone with respect, not a 12-step nebulous program that doesn't define a God, although it helps people? Have you sought Christ alone? 
Darren, I just, uh, I can't seem to fight the sin. I keep going back to God and saying, Lord, I just don't understand. Have you, have you, have you sought Christ alone? I don't want to simplify that, but I don't want to overcomplicate that. I hope you see that. Christ alone not only tells us how we're saved, but it tells us how to live. Friends, don't ever sacrifice this message. It's worth its weight in eternal gold. Let's pray today.